Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hello all, Miguel here. Before we get going today, I want to put out a quick ask. If you have a friend or family member who you think would be interested in working remotely, moving overseas, becoming an expat, or learning about digital nomadism, then I want you to share this podcast with them. We are creating a movement, a worldwide community of people who can live anywhere in the world for more freedom and prosperity. People who are excited to explore this world and connect with people and communities abroad. Being an expat is a very special thing. Not always the easiest, but always rewarding. So my goal is to inspire millions to get out there and explore the world and enrich their lives in the process. But I need your help to do it. So please take 30 seconds to share this interview with someone you think needs to hear this message. They will be grateful you did. So thank you so much in supporting this mission. I appreciate you listening to my show and joining us in our journey. Okay, let's get on to today's interview. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikhail Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show. And today's guest is a philosopher, serial tech entrepreneur, and crypto savage. He was co-founder of Cointext and is the author of several Bitcoin payment protocols. He is the author of three books and highly regarded public speaker on topics of liberty and cryptocurrency. He has recently moved from mainland United States to live in the little island of Saipan, a commonwealth of the United States in the Western Pacific Ocean. Please welcome to the show, Vin Armani. Vin, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So for... People who don't know, I have a very good friend. His name is Mark Clare. He hosts the Lions of Liberty podcast. And you've actually been a guest on there a couple of times. I've been a guest, I think, three times on his show. And he said, Mark, you have to meet my friend, Vin. He's got an amazing story. you got to get him on the show. And um, I'm really looking forward to digging into this. So, Vin, why don't you take a minute and kind of walk us through your backstory and like, how did you get down this route? And I mean, we're going to have lots of time to get into why Saipan, but just in general. I think in this particular context, so I've been in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, sort of in Bitcoin since 2012, in cryptocurrency as a developer since 2014. And then it's been since 2017, it's been pretty much my full time. Uh, At this point, almost all of my income now for several years has come in the form of cryptocurrency. And in late 2019, 
was told that uh, by by a friend that he had left, he was exploring this fledgling sort of intentional community, if you will, kind of a digital nomad setup or something like that, that, that was, had been started by a young guy who's uh, uh, got his master's in education from Stanford called Crypto Frontier. It was here in Saipan. I talked to my wife about it. She said, that sounds kind of interesting. I was all, I'd been working remotely for, for years, obviously, in the cryptocurrency industry. That's pretty common. So we were able to make that move. And we were in Southern California at the time. And it just, you know, with things kind of starting to go crazy, basically, the Gavin Newsom started the lockdown. As I said, I was working remotely, but I had a separate office. And all of a sudden, I couldn't go to my office anymore because of this lockdown that he started. And it was like, well... I'm working from home anyway, which means I could work from anywhere. Uh, but if we're going to be locked down, or w- we could choose to either be locked down or we could choose to go to a place where there isn't a lockdown and where we could be in a tropical paradise. And the level of commitment, and we can talk about that because of the nature of, you know, the fact that we could come here and we didn't even, we have passports, obviously, but we could come here without even passports. We could work immediately when we touched down. We, all of our bank accounts worked here automatically. Uh, everything. It was like moving to another state as Americans. And so it was a very easy decision uh, made easier by the fact that uh, this on April 5th, 2020, they said, well, this is going to be the last flight into the island. We're going to lock it down. They don't have a very strong medical system here. So as an overabundance of caution, we're going to lock it down. Nobody in or out for however long. So I said, I don't know when that's going to reopen. So we were literally on the last flight in here before it was locked down on April 5th. And so we've been here for over a year now. And it's, I think it's one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. And, and it's wonderful and we're enjoying it. And it's, it's very productive and great here. So that's, that's the background of how I got here. Amazing. Okay. So let's, let's slow things down a little bit. So first of all, Saipan came on your radar in what year? Late 2019, fall of 2019, maybe October, November, something like that. Okay. And so did you start looking around at other U.S. overseas territories or do any type of research or it was just like, I want to move to Saipan? Yeah, it wasn't that I was trying to leave the state specifically because I'm in cryptocurrency and because I earn my income in cryptocurrency. The level of freedom that I have and the let's say the. It just it puts a different risk profile and a different burden on your income than if there's a gigantic paper trail like most people have, right? So it wasn't that I was like, oh, it's I I need to leave for these tax reasons or whatever, um, you know. And we had just had a new child, uh, so my daughter at the time that we moved was had just turned one, and so we had moved back from New Hampshire. We were in New Hampshire. And doing the free state project thing. And then we moved back to uh, Southern California to be around family. And so it wasn't like we were, we got to get out. We got to get out. It wasn't even like that. It was that, you know, a friend of ours um, who Mark Edge, who's a host of Free Talk Live, had been for years when I, you know, knew him in, in New Hampshire. I knew that he was a big like, a guy who wanted to set up free private cities and was looking all over the world for what's the freest place and all of this. And so then when somebody told me, Hey, did you hear Mark with a one-way ticket went to this Saipan place? I said, Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. And so I immediately contacted him and then he started talking to me. Now I didn't, I had, I think heard of Saipan in terms of world war two, but I 
in terms of, I hadn't really researched because this wasn't something that I was, it's not, I wasn't planning like, oh, I need to be an expat. I need to leave somewhere. So I hadn't really researched U.S. territories in that way. I knew that some people, crypto people had gone to Puerto Rico. I, I had, I had ran a record label for a little while. And so uh, we, that did Latin urban music. I was very familiar with Puerto Rico and the way, and I was like, eh, not a place that I want to raise my kids. And so that was totally off my radar in terms of Puerto Rico. I was just like, eh, cool to visit and vacation, not where I want to live. Then Saipan, you know, I went down the list and all of the pieces were there to, and, and then the sort of the cosign of this guy who I knew for years had been researching these sorts of things. And he just up and says, wow, maybe this is a good idea and comes out here. So that was a big cosign. I talked with him a long time, then did my own research about the specifics of Saipan. Uh, which, of course, then brought up some things about other territories, which are all different. But the specifics of Saipan, I was like, which is Commonwealth of Northern Mariana, Northern Marianas Islands, uh, CNMI. I was like, yeah, I, I think this is a good call. But again, it was there was no rush to get there. We, we had said, ah, maybe at the end of the year, we'll think about it. We'll get things in order. And then it was just our timetable was moved up by the whole COVID lockdown in California. Yeah, so walk us through that a little bit. Obviously, we've all gone through some challenging times over the last 15 months or 14 months or whatever it's been. But most people just kind of were deer in the headlights and just froze. And you didn't. Walk me through that, I guess. Well, like I said, we had been... I met my wife in Las Vegas. And I've been in, in as I say, in cryptocurrency, been paying attention to... The, the winds of economic change, if you will. I'm a, you know, I guess you would identify me as a libertarian. I'm definitely a free marketeer. I identify myself as an agorist, which goes with the territory of cryptocurrency. And I, I've been a professional in this industry, which is, you know, at the top, there's a lot of ide ideology in terms of free markets, bringing more freedom to people. And California is a notoriously unfree and highly regulated place. And so I had, I met my wife living in, when I was living in Nevada, Nevada, and they hate it when you say Nevada. And then uh, we moved to New Hampshire in search of more freedom and then ended up coming back to California more to get, be around extended family because we had just had another child and seeing that, okay, this place that is unfree already relative to the places that we knew and were familiar with is about to get exponentially less free, <laughs> right? Like we're in a place, it's already not free on the, on all of these normal levels. It's about to get extraordinarily unfree, like unfree in a way that we had not thought about. And so it's time to go now because the thing of when places start to get unfree quickly, and in extraordinary ways, part of the worry is always, will you be able to leave? And I don't just mean there'll be Gestapo at the airport stopping you. I mean, there will, there's additional cost that is going to come for you to try to maintain a semblance of a normal life during this crackdown. And then it's like, have you expended your resources at that after a year? What are the resources that you've expended? And since I could, since I could work remotely, 
You know, it was one of those where, and, and I, and, you know, the other thing was my children were not yet in school. So my youngest was in preschool, you know, she, she was four at the time. So I said, well, look, we have the lowest level of commitment right here to, to this particular location. Um, wouldn't I rather spend a year in a place where I can go and do all the, do more business than I can do in California, which is, has been the case, right? Less regulatory scrutiny. Most importantly, if you're here for 183 days, it's one of the few scenarios like this. If you're here for 183 days out of a year and you live here and there's a few other small stipulations, but for most people, you live here 183 days. This is your resident, your, your residency. There's a little form. You fill it out. You send it to the IRS. You're no longer liable to taxes to the IRS anymore. Income tax is gone. You don't have to pay taxes to the, to the IRS. You pay it to the local government. But mind you, there's 55,000 people population here. And most of the income from this government, almost all of it comes from federal grants. Their tax collecting, let's say, and enforcement capabilities, there's 55,000 people, okay? And so the decision of, well, do I want my tax liability to be to uh, you know, an island nation of 55,000 people where they don't make most of their money from taxes, or do I want it to be to the IRS or the state of California, right? So that was big because even people who leave, even if you expatriate, in many cases, the IRS, you're still liable to the IRS. In this case, gone. So for me, that's done. So long as I don't go back and, and, and leave my residency here, I'm not liable to the IRS anymore, which is, as, a, as an American, I'm like, that's amazing, right? This is what we're all trying to do. So, so that was huge. That part was really big. Well, you just brought up a really interesting point about other countries' tax authorities. I think that a lot of people don't understand that when you go overseas, you live in a foreign country, not all tax authorities are the same Actually, pretty much none are as aggressive as the United States. They just don't have the power. Now, I'm not telling you to report, not report, be honest. I mean, I'm not giving you any type of advice on any type of these things. I'm just stating a fact that when you live overseas in another country, they just don't have the resources to come after you so aggressively like the United States or Canada or the UK or these types of Western countries. And it's the same thing with the police force. Like I have a house in Panama. I mean, the police there, they're not scary. I mean, they kind of wave at you. They kind of smile. They're not overly militarized. I mean, they're not driving around in armored vehicles and tanks and helicopters and all kinds of stuff. Once again, I'm not telling you to break the law by any means. I'm just giving you some understanding. Don't make a assumption that government has as much power when you live in probably, what, 170 other countries that are out there in the world. So these are important things to, to understand when going overseas. Yes. I, so I've been speaking. One of the things that I speak about when I do public speaking often is a, a framework that I've been working on for many years uh, that I try to explain to people about the reach of government. And I say that it's sort of like a triangle. And like what everything that's inside the triangle is government power. And that it's basically the three parts are scope, reach, and will. That it's like scope, I say, these are the laws on the books. Uh, the reach is the, I say, the cops on the street, 
right? The number of actual enforcers and the power of the enforcement agencies. And then will is the actual will of those enforcement agencies to actually do anything. And I think that for many Americans and Europeans, they assume that that triangle is the same everywhere. And it's like, no, it, especially that will piece, like you say with the police officers, you really, it's very important. This is a, this, there are subtle things you should look and see because in many places that triangle is just incredibly small. Even if the scope is big, it's not enough to just look at the laws on the books. It's not enough. Like culture will make a difference on will this be enforced or will this not? And people who are from those countries, you'll tell them, oh, but you've got this law that says this and that. And they'll be like, yeah, but no, that's not enforced, buddy. Like it's just nobody cares. Nobody cares about that. Yes, there's a law, but you don't understand. Europeans and Americans don't understand that in other places. And it's true here as well. So although this is a U.S. territory, it's unique in many ways that unlike Guam, which is our neighbor, but another Commonwealth, it, it does not have a military presence. Guam is basically a military base. This does not have a military presence here. Uh, it's not a spoil of war. So the people here decided they had an opportunity along with some of the other island nations like Palau, Federated States of Micronesia, Marshall Islands, they were given the basically decision of how do you want to organize yourself? So they have their own constitution here that, that you know, takes into account their own culture. Um, for instance, this was one of the first places, I think it was the first place under, an Amer under a U.S. flag to have um, legal recreational marijuana. This was the first place okay. because it's part of their wow. culture. So there's like the local gambling as well is another thing it literally written into their public laws and into their constitution is a statement that we that that it's part of our culture. And we maintain that we are independent in our laws regarding that. So there's all several of these things. And the people with all the political power and all of the law enforcement are all local by ethnicity, the Chamorro people and the Carolinian people. And. There's only 55,000 people, all the political powers in the hands of these families. So they don't have a lot of will to bother people because if they pull somebody over, there's about a one in three chance that they're pulling over a family member. And that family member may be, you know, uh, extended family member who may be highly politically powerful. So the will to enforce arbitrary stuff is very different than what Europeans or Americans would be used to. Well, and I'm so used to in Latin America now, when you need to solve a problem, if there's a police officer, I mean, literally $20 will most likely solve the problem. Now that goes exactly to what you're talking about on will. I mean, they are very happy to close one eye and just go on with their day. I mean, I don't know. I probably wouldn't try anything like that in Canada or the United States. It might be a very negative impact. <laughs> right. No, definitely not. Definitely, definitely not. Well, it, and it also has to do with pay. So, you know, they they figured that out during prohibition era in, era in the U.S. that it's before that police weren't paid very well. It was not a highly paid position and it was like where it is everywhere else. And so, you know, those things have been figured out in those places, but it is it is so much more people really, and I try to communicate it to people, but it's for some reason, it is very hard for Americans or Europeans who have not done a lot of traveling, 
right? I'm half Mexican. So we were down in Mexico all the time. So the idea of carry cash on you, because if you get pulled over by the police, you're going to pay them. That was from a little kid. I knew that that was the case. So I knew that what was going on in the States was not the way that it is everywhere and even most places in the world. So, but that is so difficult for uh, Americans and Europeans to wrap their heads around because it's so different than their cultural norm. But it's, but it is important when people are doing your research. It's not just the what's on the books, you know, talk to people who are there, talk about the cultural aspect because politics is downstream from culture. The government, the government is after culture, not before. Well, and I know there's some really famous books out there that talk about some of the ridiculous laws that are in the United States. Now, I'm going to make one up, but it's something as silly as like you can't feed a llama on Tuesday, but you can do it if it's cheese or something like that. But there are some horrible laws out there that just make no sense whatsoever. And obviously, those types of things in North America are not enforced. Well, that type of thing is also not enforced for when you're overseas but it might be enforced inside the United States, like what you were talking about, about speeding or about gambling or about drinking or drug use or any of these types of things. There's still that lack of enforcement and lack of enforcement in a lot of ways can be good. Okay, I'm not someone who believes, okay, we shouldn't have any rules whatsoever. I just don't think that 99% of the rules that are out there should be out there. I mean, I am very libertarian. I mean, don't hurt people and don't steal their shit. Like, that's pretty straightforward. I'm going to be involved in and support any of those types of rules. And I keep saying the word rules opposed to laws because I think that these can be enforced in nonviolent ways and in ways that do not have to involve the state. So saying all of this, it's really interesting when you start looking at overseas territories because I have to tell you, my first thought was that it would just be an extension of the United States. Like, I really didn't think that they would have their own constitution. I didn't think that they would. I mean, I thought there would be cultural differences, but still the framework, I thought it would still be the United States. So this is this is really interesting for me. Yeah, it is. It is very, you get here and you know immediately like, oh, I'm just nominally in the United States. Uh-huh. Nomin- <laughs> nominally. Um well, you know, just even demographics wise, it's 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 enough. I'm not now I'm not saying demographics is everything in this regard, but it should tell you something. It's at least a signal. And so it's like 30 percent Chamorro and Carolinian, which are the native people to this region. They, they've been here about 3000 years, unbroken line of their culture. Right. Then Filipinos make up about 40 percent. So you'll hear Tagalog sometimes in a day more often than you'll hear english and the chamorro language has some spanish influence in it and many of them are married to filipinos and they speak tagalog also so you'll hear a lot of tagalog here so that's already 70 percent right are uh, of the island culture many of them of the filipinos born in philippines right so they bring that here but this feels like philippines today it's like there's and a lot of the culture, things like cockfighting and betel nut chewing. And I mean, you see signs that say, do not spit betel nut, right? You'll be like, what is, like, that's, that's, that's just a sign that's on a store. It's no loitering, no betel nut spitting, 
right? So it's like, ooh, am I in the United States? Are they, am I in North America? Are they spit, spitting betel nut? Like for that, for it to be that deep in the culture. Then you have like, I think it's like another 20 something percent that's East Asian. So you see Chinese writing everywhere. You know, if you want to take a taxi, it's going to be a Chinese person. Like if you want to do some little twos and fuse hustling and buying some things, it's Chinese. So Chinese, Korean, Japanese. Other is like 6%. And then white Caucasian is less than 2%. So am I in North America or, or, or am I in the US when I go an entire day and I don't see a white person? Mm. And, and maybe I don't even hear English. Mm, not really, like, not really like the nominally the federal laws, like, okay. Yeah. The money transmission laws. Okay. Great. Right. So it's like federal money laundering, like, okay. But how, when is it that federal laws even matter? And there's no federal enforcement agents on the streets here. So yeah, it's very far from the United States. It's culture is, you know, so much older than the United States and the cultures that are influencing it are not North American culture. So, and like I say, culture is downstream from politics. Like when you get here, you immediately know, and it affects everything from like, even down to aesthetics, you know, of what is appropriate for your yard to look like. It's like, well, is it appropriate to have like five junker cars out there or whatever? They're like, oh, it's a Chamorro lawn. You know what I mean? (laughs) And it's just like, it's the, it's the subtle differences that are the deepest. And it's all of those things lined up to where you get this incredible, like, I feel so free here. And everybody that I know that is here feels so free. Your ability to move around in the world here. Oh my God. And I mean, to do business here, you know, I'll give you an example that, uh, you know, you can, you can form, let's say, uh, so we have a remittance business here and it's, so it's, and we're a, a federally registered money transmitter and a remitter under a money transmitter under the state laws here. That's to try to do something like that in California or Texas or something like that. Millions of dollars, lawyers, huge amounts of bonding, all of this type of stuff, heavy regulations with massive background checks. Dude, it's like four pieces of paper here and a fee. And that's true for every business here. So like, there's no Uber here. I tell people there's no Uber. So oh, there's no Uber. I said, no, there can't be Uber because if you want to be a licensed taxi cab operator, it's $30. It cost me, it would cost me more to, to sign myself up on Uber and be more work than me going down with one piece of paper and my registration, handing it to them along with $30. And, oh, I'm a taxi cab. Uh, I have, I run a taxi cab business now. That's how it is for everything here, right? So very different. Very, very different. Well, thank you. Okay, so while you were talking, that made gave me two memories. So well, the first one is talking back about Filipino. I lived in the Middle East for eight years, and people are always asking me, oh, how's your Arabic? Did you learn Arabic? How's your Arabic? I'm like, there is, like... We knew hardly any people from the actual GCC. Like 10% of the population were Emiratis. Like 30, 40% were Filipinos. I learned more Tagalog in eight years of living there than I did Arabic. I mean, there's more influence from that culture. Same with the Indians. So much influence from the Indian side, Indian, Pakistani, that kind of subcontinent. 
than from the Arabic side. So that's kind of a little side note on that. Another one was talking about the regulation and ease of setting up businesses. Where I live in Panama, when you get a business license, when you open a license, I mean, you don't actually have to say what the business is. I mean, a business, a corporation license can be anything. I mean, like you want to run a law firm, you want to, you want a hospital, you want, you want a money transferring, you want to be a, a family office and and take people investors' money. I mean, more or less, these are all the same business licenses. It's not like in North America where you you open a business and you are pigeonholed into that. And I mean, that is your little piece to do. They just don't have the authority or the power to enforce and to keep track of all these different things. So uh, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> okay, so talk to me a little bit more about the culture. I want to understand, like, what is it like? Like, paint, okay, here, paint me a picture of what your day is like in Saipan. Sure. I mean, I, so I work remotely and uh, generally I wake up in the mornings pretty early and I will go out and get in my morning prayers and my workout down on the beach. Now you're within a 10 minute drive of a beautiful beach. If you live here, that's the farthest away you're going to be. When we first moved here, we actually found one of the rare houses that is right on the beach. So I used to be able to just walk, open my gate and walk out. Now we're up on a hill, but it's five minutes to a beautiful beach called micro beach. That's by the American Memorial park. And my kids spend, all every afternoon, all afternoon on, on the beach. It's a big beach culture on the weekends here. All of the families, like I said, like I said, it's basically, you know, from a political standpoint, the culture and the local culture, it's families uh, and extended families. So, I mean, when the elections come along, it's like the same six last names on the Democrat side and on the Republican side running against each other. And then Sablons and the Magnolias and all of these. And it's like they're everywhere. So like every every fifth person tomorrow you meet is a Sablon, you know. And so it's like you just they're all related. And then down during the uh, during the weekends, the beaches are just packed. So they just have fiestas, family gatherings, huge, which is one of the reasons they were unable to lock down here is because for thousands of years, they go down and that's what they do and they get together and there's not going to be any mask wearing and there's not going to be any social distancing. Like it would demolish their entire culture. It's their, their whole culture is based on these regular gatherings together. It's just, it's, it's everything to them. It's their entire life. And so it's, it's what's important. It's the most valuable thing to them and the cohesion of the culture. But you told me earlier that half of your family is Mexican. Did you see any similarities between Latin culture and this culture? Because when you're speaking and it's like family and fiestas and going out and spending time with the extended family and being on the beach, I mean, that's what I've really grown to love living in Latin America. That So it, I think that that's probably one reason why the Spanish culture really took root here in a strong way. There wasn't a lot of fighting um, here, this wasn't a difficult takeover for the Spaniards, uh, at all. They, they sort of blended in and it's a very Catholic culture. That's the other thing. They're conservative, but not conservative. Like it's, it, it is interesting. Like they're modest, but not, let's say prudish. So th they like, when it comes to, let's say drinking, drug use, 
sexual behavior, these sorts of things, they're not prudish in that they stop other people from doing those things. So the commercial area here has been known for decades as being like, basically, there's, I know there's laws against prostitution, but there's like, it's much less now because there's not tourists, but it's just like, there's a district where it's just like, they're on the street. That's it, you know? And if you want to drink and you want to do whatever, no problem. They're not puritanical or prudish, but they they do very much value that as individuals, like that a woman would be, wouldn't be showing so much skin. But they are also not asking anybody to cover up. That that you would have be in a monogamous relationship where you weren't like openly cheating on your spouse with somebody else. Although those things do happen, you know what I mean? And these sorts of things. And they're not they're not overly prudish. They're not evangelical about pushing their religion, but they have a strong moral foundation that's based on family, that their system is it's it's rank ordered by age. So you just base the oldest people are in are in control of the family. And what they say, you just you do it. And that's how they get along. And then, the, and the older people in the top of the families, they organize how the families will relate with one another. And so they're very, it's, it, it means that they don't have to enforce a lot with laws. It's a lot of social pressure and people sort of go along and they're very high manners, very polite, very friendly. You always feel at home here. Like everybody, everybody is nice. They make you feel at home. So long as you're not being an ass, you're not rocking the boat. You're not trying to do anything that, that will, that is offensive, that is openly offensive. Oh, you could do just about anything. You want to run any kind of business. You want to do whatever, even maybe you don't have a license to do whatever. So long as you're not openly flouting that, you know, it's like, go ahead, go ahead. It's open to you. And so culturally like they've written into the constitution here so much common area so like there's all kinds of laws about like you know 150 feet from the the high water mark and all of that nobody can build anything this is basically something that belongs to the people and all of that you know there are not chain like a lot of chain things here there's no national let's say grocery stores there's no national brand anything which is something that people will who come here from the United States, especially will be like, whoa, there's not like a Walmart or a Target or even like a mainland. The only mainland brands, there's like two McDonald's or maybe three in the whole Commonwealth because there's three islands. And there's a, a Pizza Hut, a KFC. That's it. One of each of those, right? And all the rest is independent businesses, restaurants, there's dozens upon dozens of little grocery stores that are all kind of independent. Maybe a, a, a company owns three or four of them. There's a bigger company here called Joe 10 and they own like three grocery stores and like a car dealership and some other things, you know, got maybe a couple restaurants or whatnot. That's as big as it gets here. And that's, that makes such a difference in terms of culture. But it also means that sometimes I've got to go to four grocery stores to get all the things that my wife puts on the list, right? Now, luckily, they're right next to each other. They'll literally be next to each other. There'll be two grocery stores literally next to each other, right? And they don't care. But you start to learn, oh, well, they carry this. Or, and then you call somebody, hey, do you know where I could get such and such? And they're like, oh, yeah, go down, you know, the, the Lucky Mart that's on, you know, that's over in Garapan on the side on Beach Road. It's like, ah, okay, let's go down there, right? Yeah, so... Uh, you do spend a lot of time running errands. I'll say that grocery shopping takes a long time here, but you you get used to it. And it's like, that's, that's the trade-off for, for having that sort of level of competition and that level of freedom. And I enjoy it. It's a nice change.
Well, I remember having, my goodness, I can't even remember which episode it was, but I had someone on the podcast and we were talking about living in the South Pacific. I lived in the South Pacific for four years and they were telling me a story. I think it was in Vanuatu, but it could have been in Tonga or Fiji or one of the other South Pacific countries. And they were saying that they went over to someone's house for dinner and the people actually apologized to them that they didn't have any spam because spam was seen as this Western food, but all they had was like local, like fish and fruits and vegetables and everything like that. But they didn't have any spam to offer. I imagine it's probably, well, I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I mean, do people have in their minds this idea of Western food or food from mainland United States is very high and maybe they don't see so highly of their own produce and meats and fish and everything like this. Have you had an experience like this at all or no? Oh yeah. And that's re- That's actually a really interesting, well, first off, spam is huge here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but, um, it's as, as it is all over the Pacific. That's, that's a leftover from world war two, for sure. You walk into stores here and it's just spam and all sp- there's many varieties of canned meat. If people don't know, that's something that every store here has even, even like a full boiled chicken in a can, right? Like it's the whole chicken is in the can, but they, uh, this, they eat a lot of beef here, but there is not a beef, not a beef industry. Um, but there are chickens everywhere, but they don't eat much chicken. They don't think much about chicken. Uh, we eat a lot of chicken here. Uh, my, my family and I, we don't, we're not huge red meat eaters, but they eat a lot of beef and pork, which is all obviously imported. Uh, but there, there is not commercial fishing here, but the fish is, so the fisheries are full. The fisheries are just absolutely full. And it, it, the fish is excellent. Like the local caught fish is excellent. And there are many, many people who fish for their family's food every day. If you go down on the beaches, that's another thing that's in the constitution is the people's right to fish is huge here. Like that's just something that you're allowed to do so long as it's with like what they call native means. So poles, nets, and spear fishing. Spear fishing is big. The whole Western side of so no trolling no, or something. No, 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 and, no, no, scooping no, it no, all no. up. Yeah. The Western side of Saipan is all a lagoon, so it's very. I mean, it's at the deepest part. It's like you know maybe up to your chest, at with the protected reef, and there's tons of fish. I mean, even things like black-tipped sharks and which are small and and rays. You'll see these beautiful groups of rays just within 10 feet of the, you know, you're walking along the beach and here's these rays following you along. You know, I've, I've, I video them sometimes, but yeah, you can go out so long as you don't do it with scuba people go out and you see them starting to come in in the evenings and you just see these tired guys in their spear fishing wetsuits and they get on the beach and they've just got, they're just dangling all of these beautiful fish that they've, that they've spear fished. And uh, yeah, on the side of the road, you go down beach road and on the side of the road, there's just these little, you know, the, the people selling what the fishermen brought in that day, all kinds of the, the snapper here is, I think it's called an Onidongo. Oh my goodness. It's really, really good. And then the local vegetables are great. It's all we eat in terms of vegetables. They're available everywhere and of many different varieties. And, um, they're cheap. I mean, cheap, cheap, cheap. And they're, you know, they're not certified organic, but it's like everything grows here. So uh, they are very, very high quality. It's not factory farming. It's small local farms. So if somebody is a local vor, it's actually cheaper 
the local fresh, super fresh vegetables are way cheaper than the stuff that's been imported, which is crazy to me. I'm like, oh, it's the exact reverse. <laughs> like if you go to a farmer's market in North America, 5X the price of what you're going to pay in the store, right? It's the reverse here. It's like five times less. And my family, we eat, that's how we eat. But the locals, you're absolutely right. They, they do view the imported stuff as being better than their own, which is probably, it's an old holdover, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a social standing as well, I think, in a lot of ways. If you're able to afford the things from North America, then that means you are more rich of a family. And even though these would be, might be the things that, you know, we wouldn't be caught dead serving on our tables. I mean, like if I, if I had a dinner party in North America and everyone came over and I served spam, I mean, that would not be what I would want to do. But I mean, that's not the way in many cultures in the world. They see that as actually a very good thing to serve, where if I could be able to serve coconuts and papayas and fresh fruits and vegetables, I mean, I'd be like heaven. I mean, that's, that's everything. Well, I've got, I mean, I'm looking at like five papaya trees within 20 feet of me with papayas right now that are this big. I've got banana trees, banana trees in my yard, you know, that, that we eat off of. There's all, I mean, everything, so many things grow here. Breadfruit is great. Breadfruit with coconut milk. Coconuts are like, they're everywhere. They're just a nuisance. So you can chop them down and just drink coconut milk all day if you want. It's beautiful. But again, it's like a comparative advantage sort of situation, like a Ricardian comparative advantage economics sort of puzzle and game that, you know, you don't appreciate what's local to you, but that's exactly what everybody else in the world is interested in. That's exactly what they're here for. So they'll just let these papayas sit here and just rot or let them be eaten by local animals, right? Whereas, you know, some Whole Foods locavore would pay some exorbitant amount of money to be able to have those papayas that they're just sitting there, you know, letting them rot on the tree. So, well, I think this is an interesting topic, especially because of what is happening in the world. We're seeing all these lockdowns and people are really waking up. I, I truly believe that people are waking up all around us. And I think that we're going to have a resurgence of independence and self-reliance. And with that comes the ability to produce a lot of your own food. I know when I left the Middle East more than two years ago, I mean, I didn't like what was happening over there. I mean, I saw that the world was going to make a massive change. Did I know it was going to be a virus that took over? No, actually, I thought it was the U.S. was going to invade Iran. I traveled through Iran, I spent time in the country, I have friends there, and I really thought that the UAE was going to be a staging ground to invade Iran. Looks like we took a bit of a break from that, and now under the new administration, they're going to be picking up and rolling with that ball. But one of my big fears was the fact that living in the desert, we had no fresh water, all of our water was... Um, like reverse osmosis, it was all desalinated water, I should say. And the fact that we pretty much grew nothing except for date palms. So yes, I like dates, but I do not want to eat only dates all day long, every day for the rest of my life. So when we started looking around in the world where we could get an easy visa to go through, and my wife is from mainland China, so we have a whole bunch of challenges with a Chinese passport and getting in. And Panama was open. And I looked at Panama, I'm like, okay, tons of fresh water. I mean, they can grow anything and absolutely everything there. The weather is warm year round. 
all right, it was warm year round in the UAE, except it's so warm that you could literally cook. And if the electricity went out, once again, you know, problems with a war, then I mean, you're going to fry in the summer. So I tried to find that happy medium. And I think that more people are starting to wake up to this. You know, they're going to start to want to think, where is a peaceful place that I can live, that I can raise my kids, that I can have my beliefs and my rights respected, and I can take care of my family. And part of that is producing some of their own food or having things grown locally. Even if they don't grow it themselves, their next door neighbor does, or there's a farmer's market where they can go down the street and do some type of a barter. I think that barter will become important again. And I, and I think it should. So these types of small island communities, which can be self-sufficient. Now I'm not saying that they want to be, or there won't be growing pains or there won't be challenges, but the fact that it is a possibility, I think is going to be highly valuable going forwards in the world. And one other thing that I would, uh, one, first off, 100%. Another thing that has occurred to me recently, so, and this really came about, one of, so one of the businesses that I started here, uh, I've started several since we've, since we've uh, come, but one is uh, we're a reseller for a satellite internet company that was launched on SpaceX it's called Pacific and they cover this region. And so we're their, their internal seller here. So, so we're already in and we have some government contracts and some other things. So satellite internet to where anywhere on these islands, if you've got a, even a generator or solar, there's a lot of solar power. I'm looking at solar panels on the, the house right below me on the hill here. You've got internet, right? So it's like, there's no, no need for, and it's broadband, no need for anything wired or anything like that. I think one of the things that we do is we, our natural instinct is to say, well, how is X there? So people have asked me, how is the internet? How are the schools? How is, so they're asking about these services. How are they? But we need to start looking at this in a little bit of a different way. If we want these services, so if we believe that these services are, are important and valuable and they don't exist there, that is actually a better signal and opportunity that we should go there. Why? Because if we go there and we are the ones who bring that there, well, we've just established an income stream for ourselves in that location. So somebody says, how's the internet? I'll give you the, uh, so the prime example is the satellite internet company, right? That it came to me that it's like, wow, there are some places not covered. And it literally was just me reaching out to this company and saying, hey, and they said, well, we kind of have started working with this other guy there and he's a tech and here, meet with him. And so, boom, now we've got a joint venture, right? With my partners and him. And so we're one company and we just start, and we start installing these things. But it's like, we've got uninhabited islands. We have three Northern islands that are uninhabited, basically, that are beautiful, but there's no infrastructure there. And when we even approached the government and we told them, look, we have the solution. First, we set up a tester for them in their Department of Commerce. And then immediately they were like, wait, we could put these on the Northern Islands? Wait, we could deliver communications to the people on the Northern Islands? They could have internet? They could use WhatsApp up there so they could actually be using making phone calls? They, could do, they were like, oh, this is going to help us settle those islands. They want to settle those islands. So it's a matter of like, oh, well, those Northern Islands, well, is there internet there? No. Bingo. 
opportunity. Because it's not, yes, you can work remotely. That's great. And I do. And you bring income in. But if you're going to go live in a place, like the opportunity to be there and to not just be a taker, but to be contributing is going to enable you to enmesh yourself within that society so much faster. Because now you're not just this, you're not just an expat who's there and the local people look at you as like, and eh, we tolerate them because they bring money in. It's like, no, they're providing for our people. They're, they're here giving something. Now, of course, you got to make a profit in the process. But just because you make a profit offering a, a valuable service, you're still valuable. It's not doesn't have to be altruism, right? And so I think that this is another way for people to look as they think and move forward is that instead of saying, well, how are the schools? Eh, they're not that good. Well, are you an educator? Do you have a background in education? That means there's a need for a school. Go there, start a school, and then the schools, and then all the expats that come will put their kids in the school. Oh, there's there's internet, there's there's dark spots of internet where it's not blacked out. Go there and start a satellite internet company. Electricity, Green New Deal, right? One of the things here, they get a lot of grants. We were just talking the other day that it's like the power plan is unreliable. Okay. I'm not woke, but the Biden administration is going to start giving out tons of grants, federal grants to businesses that are going to put in renewable energy. So we're going to do it here. We're going to start wiring it up with solar panels. We'll take the government's money and do that. Provides for the people, provides for us some profit. This is the place that people need to think. Don't just go there to escape. You're not fleeing. Go there so that you can help to build. Be, be valuable to them. Be a contributor. Don't just be a taker. Super, super important on that one. I mean, that's a big difference. I think what I've tried to do in my life as an expat, people often ask me like, what's the difference between an expat and a digital nomad or an expat and a traveler or an expat and an immigrant? I mean, I do my best to try to incorporate myself into the culture and the community and the language and the food and have friends and be a part of something. I'm not going to some place and just complaining that it's not the way it is back home or we don't have this or we don't have that. I mean, I want to try to understand as much as I can what it is like to, to be there. And your points on how you can actually help the people, I mean, I think is right on point. Absolutely. I mean, anytime as an entrepreneur that you can solve problems, I mean, well, first of all, that is what an entrepreneur is. That, that is entrepreneurship. I mean, that's the difference between a small business owner or a professional or owning your own practice and being an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur solves problems. And that's what you're talking about here. So being able to combine these and being at the crossroads of it during a time like today, I mean, that is opportunity. People are always looking for opportunities and, and you know, what should I do next or how do I get on this? And they're usually looking in the past. They're looking at things that have already been done. How can I create the next Uber or the next Airbnb or something like that? I mean, there is so much opportunity, but you're going to have to open your eyes for it. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. So I want to pivot a little bit, but not really, because we are talking about acceptance and how the local people view you. Tell me a little bit about your experiences making friends, getting involved in the community on a personal level, not just on a business level. 
That is an excellent question. And it is an absolute X factor, I think. So one of the valuable things about the way that this particular group, let's say, started. So if by the way, CryptoFrontier.org, if people want to see, that's sort of the... I guess you would say that is the on-ramp for this community. So this was started by the guy, Alex Ugorji, that I said, who's got his uh, master's from Stanford. He had been looking for this location. He had been looking around. He's a young guy. He's in his 20s. And he had explored much of Asia. He was teaching in, in China. He speaks Chinese. He is half Nigerian. So he also had some background in terms of what's going on in Africa, too. And so he was looking all over the world, really. And, and Thailand was kind of was calling to him. But then you get kind of the digital nomad thing. There isn't a lot of space. You're within a, a band of behavior and activity there. That's, that is the digital nomad community, right? There's not a lot of space for doing things outside of that within the culture. Maybe you can eventually build a little hotel that's for you can do things for the digital nomad community a little store maybe a little bar or a restaurant whatever but it's within that community he was looking for something that could be broader and grow and it was through a meeting a chance meeting that he had with a gentleman whose family has been here he's chinese ethnically but his family has been here for many generations and so he actually has the designation of person of marianas islands descent which they've got in their constitution that this is one of the interesting quirks is only people of Northern Marianas descent can own land here. So, and this is in some ways, this is similar to how Mexico was set up too. So you can have a 55 year lease, which allows you to do a lot of business, but in terms of actually holding the title on something, it's going to be held by someone of national of uh, Northern Marianas descent. So he does have that. So he is actually able to own land, even though he's not Chamorro, but his family has just been here. He's Chinese and his family has a very successful, um, large hardware store uh, that's like a contractor style and a very successful um, construction company here that he runs. It's been in his family for generations. And he was raised here and he knows everybody. But he also has this kind of interesting position where he's considered a local by all of the locals, but he's also not tied to a specific family. So he's without a, outside of the local politics. So he's able to talk to and deal with all of them. And he, his family has contracts with the government and people when they're building their house come and buy from his family. And he's well known. He was a wonderful on point that so Alex met him. And it's been through him that the people who have come in are able to make all of these connections with the locals and be accepted. There's this immediate kind of cosign. And so as of yet, the community hasn't grown so big that anybody has shown up who's been a kind of somebody that we're like, ah, we want to distance ourselves, right? I was in New Hampshire with the Free State Project, and there's actually a lot of those. But I think some of that comes from you can't just pack up your camper van and drive here you got to make a significant commitment to come here. And I think that that commitment, maybe more than almost anywhere else in the world that you would want to go, right? That commitment is keeps keeps the riffraff away, if you will. The people who have come here so far are... <laughs> nice descriptive yes, they, term. <laughs> they are, the people who have come here so far to participate in this project are some pretty amazing people, I must say. And I think that some of it has to do with the fact that it requires that sort of commitment. So that's only a certain certain type of person is going to do that. So the, the local people have been incredibly receptive 
to the things that we've been doing. We, so, you know, it's cryptocurrency. We've got our point of sales where we're paying in, uh, in cryptocurrency for, you know, things at restaurants, liquor stores, bars, we've got obviously the hardware store, grocery stores, all of that. And they accepted it. They were very happy to see, and they're very happy to see us when we show up to, to pay in cryptocurrency. And it's one of the reasons why we established our money transmission and remitter business was to be able to cash them out. So you are so sorry, pause. You're on a remote island in the middle, for all intents and purposes, in the middle of nowhere. And you're actually actually able to buy your goods in everyday life with cryptocurrency today. Today, not like, hey, we're gonna be able to do this in five years. No, every from day. Now. Today. Yeah, I built the I built that's the systems. Amazing. So that's, yeah, that's my background. That's what I've been working on all these years is building these systems. And so this was an opportunity to touch down. And then with those connections, you know, and us saying, hey, we'll cash you out. You know, you don't even need, we've got a business that where we can cash them out legally. So we've basically got a legal local cryptocurrency exchange business. And um, so, yeah. And, and what's wonderful is, I mean, just... Oh, what's today? Two days, two nights ago, you know, in the evening, we had a night, we have get togethers and just here at my house and uh, the owner of kind of the boutique liquor store, who's also a, an, a wholesaler and he owns like the most popular kind of bar nightclub here uh, was here. And we had a whole conversation about crypto because now through him accepting cryptocurrency at his businesses and us and our community going and spending it, now he's a big crypto head and he's totally into it, right? And he's spreading the good word to everybody. And he's and he's from here. He's Korean by background, uh, by ethnicity, but he he was raised here as well. This is the opportunity, you know. And so we've we've taken it taken it on full blast. And and so yeah. So if that's any indication, the acceptance of what we're doing, again, it's and it's about contributing. Again, it's like offering services to people that make businesses more money, that bring them more customers, uh, you know, and then actively going and participating. So. That's, I mean, that's, that's what we do. The reception has been great. Well, I don't want to get too far down the road of cryptocurrency, maybe another episode in the future, but just a little tidbit on this. I think that the way you guys are doing it is the right way. I think that instead of trying to roll things out, you know, nationwide, the United States show that this is the real, a real replacement, being able to do it in a smaller community. You said what? 55,000 people, 55,000, 55,000 people, roll it out, figure out what the problems are, if any, have it working and use this as a model for other communities in the world. Let's have a place that we can look to because I mean, I, you mentioned free private cities and other projects like that. I mean, I'm huge into a lot of those projects. I know everybody involved in them. I've had people on the podcast. I go drinking with some of these people from Seasteading Institute and all these different places. I think that there's so many amazing things that are out there, but let's get some of these ideas tested as fast as possible right now today. Let's stop worrying about things from five years, 10 years. Let's deal with the things immediately and now use that as a beacon. Well, it worked here in Saipan. This is what they did. This was the process. Okay, let's roll it out to here. What were the challenges? How did they overcome it? Where where were the strengths? What were the reception? How, how did this all come together piece by piece by piece and use that as a model? So congratulations, because that is super, super exciting. Well, I will tell you, it should be shortly that we will be able to make an official announcement that 
the government here is accepting cryptocurrency for taxes and fees. So that's, yeah, they've all basically the yes is already there right now. We're just working out the logistics with some exchange partners and some other things to make sure that everything can go smoothly for them. But again, it's a small community. And so, you know, the secretary of finance was sitting in a restaurant and, you know, one of the people who's the economic development director was like, having drinks with him. And he's like, Oh, did you, do you see that sign? Did you know these guys have set up a thing where they accept, they can accept cryptocurrency. And he was like, and this is this, this is the secretary of basically the treasury secretary was like, Oh, I want to meet with them, set up a meeting. And then it's like, Hey, can, can we just, since they're making it like that, we're happy to, if you can make it work for us logistically, of course. And I, and I have the power to do it. Right. So these places exist in the world, you know, people who are entrepreneurs and they feel frustrated. It's like, just look, don't assume, you know, and it's like, ah, the government, screw the government. And it's like, man, things get real different when it's like one degree of separation to the governor. You know, within within probably two months of being here, uh, we were invited through a friend who we we had, we went and spoke at the Rotary Club about what we were doing. And one of the women at the Rotary Club was like, hey, I'm having dinner at my house tonight. Uh, the governor's coming. Do you want to come? And it was like 10 of us with the governor within within two months of me being here. And it's like these these places exist. You know, if you're frustrated with the way that things are and you're like you feel uh, alienated from. That's what the real problem is, the real problem. And even with the lockdowns and the mass and all of this is an alienation of the government from the people. It's very different when it's like you're at somebody's house. Yeah, who's a mutual friend. And here comes the governor. We were we were overdressed. The governor showed up in flip-flops and, and a t-shirt and, and shorts. <laughs> nice. Because he was just at a friend's house. Right. Yeah, and we yeah, we had a little kind of business casual, like, oh, let's look. And then we're like, oh, wow, okay. You know, <laughs> it's very different when you're just sitting and just breaking bread and you're just like, hey man, you know, these lockdowns, it, we can't do these. So it's like if you want to change your life, you sometimes you just need to change the scenery, you know. And it will happen. But that circles back to one of your first points about the regulation and the opportunities and that are out there. I mean, in these smaller types of communities, you have so much opportunity. There's so many things that you can do. And things happen there that just would never happen in the United States. I mean, first of all, in my opinion, the States is just too big. Like it's just it's too big of a country. There's too many people. There's too many different types of cultures. There's too many different wants and needs. And I mean, it's just too big on all in any type of measurement, but you start going to these smaller communities and it's not like that. I mean, you can actually shape things in a nonviolent way through your words, through influence in ethical means. I mean, sitting down having bread and explaining your point of view and actually having them listen. I mean, I can't believe that I have to say how amazing that is but I mean, like you shouldn't have to say how amazing that is, but in this day and age you do. I mean, do you know what I'm trying to say here? Well, our ancestors, our ancestors all lived like that. That was, that was the norm for most of human evolution. What we're experiencing now is an, is an outlier artifact and it's exactly why it's falling apart. So my view has been, it's all going this way anyway, you know? And it seems to me that a lot of people, especially libertarians, are like, yeah, it needs to be smaller communities. It needs to be all of this. And then they say that while living in the middle of a giant metropolis. 
And it's like, well, practice what you preach. Practice what you preach, brother. <laughs> uh, don't get me started, Vin. Don't get me started. <laughs> okay, I, I'll, I'll I'll do my quick rant. I, I, my 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 listeners have probably heard me go off on this a number of times. All right, I have been interviewed on probably. 99% of all libertarian podcasts out there. And I started getting interviewed on these a couple of years ago. And I thought this was so amazing because, I mean, I can teach you, I can show you how to legally reduce your taxes to zero and live in a country that has no standing military. So you are literally not contributing to dropping bombs on women and children. I'm, I'm very passionate about these types of things. And I started going on all these podcasts and started talking about this. And people, you know, there's so many interviews of me showing these types of things. And people are really interesting. And then I talked to the people, like even the hosts, like a year later or two years later or three years later. And I was like, so what are you doing? Yeah, I'm still living in New York. I'm still living in California. I'm still living in Portland. I'm like, are you serious? Like, I mean, you've dedicated your life to this. You've, you've done 100 interviews. And I mean... I'm not trying to rag on you guys too much, but I mean, these guys, they speak about it. They believe about it. They, they read all the literature. It's the theory, the practice. I mean, except the doing something about it, actually putting it into their lives. And I guess this is maybe a challenge for a lot of my listeners out there. If you are living in the United States right now or Canada or Western Europe, and you don't agree with what is happening with the lockdowns, with the taxation, by government's overreach, there are still options out there. There are places you can go. There are things you can do to make a change in your life. Right now, today, I mean, this stuff exists. Like, Vin, like you're describing a place right now that you can actually pay. Yeah, <laughs> it's just gotten 10 times easier. You don't even need a passport. You don't even need a passport. If you're a U.S. citizen, you could, do you have a driver's license? Like, you could get here with the driver's license and you could work tomorrow. You know what I mean? And it's not like you, you, but I think that you bring up a very good point. I've for years, and I wrote about this in my first book, I've got a little section where I delineate the difference between these two dichotomies. One is simple versus complex, and then easy versus difficult. People get these dichotomies confused, right? Because the most valuable things are always simple. Incredibly simple, but incredibly difficult. And there's no amount of learning more information or anything like that that can make something that is simple but difficult any more simple or any less difficult. It doesn't get less difficult. The, the, the example that I use is, uh, well, dude, as a bodybuilder, you know this, right? That it's like building a beautiful body is simple yet difficult. Sure, in the beginning, maybe there will be one or two months of your journey where you're going to need to learn the proper form of what you're doing, get your splits down for what your routine is going to be on a weekly basis, and learn about what you're going to eat. But, you know, people would ask me, they'd be like, yeah, I mean, you can find pictures of me online. I was on a TV show where my body had to be in great shape, you know, bodybuilding. And they would be like, well, what do you eat? And I'd say chicken breast and vegetables. And they'd be like, well, what else? <laughs> that's it. Broccoli. <laughs> Bro chicken breast. Brown rice, broccoli, that's and it. chicken. That's yeah, it. Like, much. that's it. And they'd yeah. be like, well, but I heard that you have to add a black. And I said chicken breasts and 
vegetables. That's it. And you know what? If you're a professional bodybuilder, that's actually your job. The suffering is your job is to eat clean and simple and it, it tastes like crap. You don't get the joy. There's a lot of suffering, but the suffering is in the eating. And so this is the simple and it's just like, it's the same thing with going somewhere because no matter, no matter what you try to do to prep and prepare yourself, there's going to be incredible suffering as you know, as well as anybody else. When you touch down, expect a year or two of really being uncomfortable. Like you've got to get your foot feet on the ground, especially if you're in a place that, for instance, like you don't speak the primary language that's spoken or even like the secondary language for a year or two, it's going to be really, really hard. And there's no amount of study or learning or listening to podcasts or anything like that. That's going to make it easier. What it can do, hopefully. And I think what you do with, with the work that you do. And certainly, I mean, what I'm trying to communicate here is that it's like, it's difficult, but it gets easier and other people have done it. And there are communities of people who are there who will be willing to help you. That's what you can get from that. But then you got to jump. It's you literally just got to grab the talisman around your neck, look and just say a prayer and jump off the cliff. That's it. <laughs> well, and that's why we started our Facebook group. Like if you guys go to expatmoneyforum.com, it'll redirect you right to our private group. Because I was seeing all the time that people would hear me talk about these things, but it was always like they had some type of false belief pattern. Well, someone else can do that or you can do that, Mikkel, because you've been doing this for 20 years and you're special. Uh, first of all, I'm not special. I'm just a regular guy. I just don't have that little piece of fear that everybody else seems to have in them. I just, that, that little piece, that is my superpower. Like it just doesn't exist in me. And that's why I've been able to do these types of things. But having a community where you can see that other people have actually done not, not 20 years ago, not 10 years ago, but like right now today are doing the things that you want to do. And it's like, well, Bob's done it. I mean, I can do it. If Sally's done it, then that's I can do it. I mean, I think that is so, so, so important. And as for your points about having things difficult when you move to another country or culture or language, I mean, you really just have to spend time with it. I mean, yes, you can read. And yes, I encourage you to listen to every one of my yes. podcast interviews. Of course. <laughs> I'm kind of biased. And I think that we do a really good job here. And, you know, you can get support. But at the end of the day, you are going to have to spend time there. Spend time with the language. Spend time with the people. Um, getting accustomed to where your favorite restaurant and is food and this and that and the laws and how everything functions. And there is no way to... to academically learn those types of things. You're going to have to experience them yourself. And I'm going to be doing an interview, not an interview, I'm going to be doing an episode on myself in a couple of weeks to talk about Brazil. So I haven't really made it official, but we have recently relocated to Brazil and we'll be spending part of the time between Brazil and Panama. Okay, my, my Spanish has gotten very fluent in the last two years in Panama. However, Turns out that Spanish and Portuguese really are not the same language at all, even though a lot of people like to say that they are. It turns out I know no Portuguese and can't get by with Spanish in any shape or form here. So, you know, you have this world traveler, international expat, and I have to fumble my way through everyday life just like anybody who is listening 
to this interview today. And like I said, I'm going to do an entire talk. I have so much to, to say about the experience, but you have to go through it. And to, to kind of bring this full circle, I think that's what you're saying as well by going to this other country and, or overseas territory, overseas commonwealth, and incorporating yourself into the society and making friends and going through all this stuff. You have to do it. You have to spend time and reading books, reading, there's going to be no surrogate for it. No, that's exactly, that's exactly right. You just, you've got to do it. And there's no time like the present. I think in my life, and one of the reasons why I am able to make moves like this is I'm old enough now, I'm 42. I'm old enough now to look back on all the times when I have waited to do something. And it's like, well, if you do it a year from now, that's a year that you didn't spend getting your, you know, how much better of a situation would you be in had you had a year? Right. And it's like, if you're already thinking to go somewhere, you're, that means your situation where you are is already in decline. So what you're going to do is you're going to, it's like you're the opportunity cost gets more and more and more and more and more as you don't jump. And there's no amount of planning. I mean, there's, there's something to be said for saving, but at the same time, hopefully you're earning, right? So hopefully during that time you're earning. And if you are in a situation where you say, well, yeah, but the job that I have, I couldn't do it remotely. It's like, well, now is the time to leave that job and find a remote one now. And then as soon as you have the remote one, it's like, plan out. I have the room. I have the remote job. I, 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 I'm hired tomorrow. Be on a plane. Like tomorrow, ben, be on I, a plane. <laughs> I got to get you to repeat the catch line from your interview with Mark on Lions of Liberty. What was it? It's like, get your, your shit sh and go. <laughs> pack your shit and go. That's it. Seriously. <laughs> it's brilliant. I love that whole interview. You guys have got to go listen to Lions of Liberty. Mark's got an awesome show. Look up Vin's episode. How many times have you been on? Twice or three times? Uh, two or three times. I, I Two, certainly in the last year. I may have been on one time before that. I don't remember. Well, we did. you did the one interview where you were talking really about your backstory and about your TV career and everything like that. And then the second part was talking about the lockdowns. And I think the lockdowns had just happened a couple of months before. And I mean, the passion in that interview, I was like, <laughs> this is hilarious. I got to get Ben on here. We got to talk about this <laughs> <Great>. stuff. <laughs> Brilliant. Vin Armani, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Awesome Mika. conversation. Congratulations on all the work that you're doing. I think it's really, really important. Um, I encourage my listeners to go and check out Vin's work. Go look at the other interviews, which we mentioned. And if they want to reach out to you or they want to get a hold of you, where can my listeners find you, Vin? So I think in this context, probably the best way is uh, cryptofrontier.org. So if they, because I'm assuming that they'd probably want to start a first step of learning a little bit more of Saipan. So I am an official advisor for, for that. Um, and Alex is a great resource. If they want to follow me on Twitter, it's, it's at Vin Armani. And from there, it's, there's a lot of links associated with that. They can reach out. And I'm certainly more than happy to speak with anybody and, and to answer questions and, you know, and, and take time with people. So yeah, if they want to do that. And then uh, I have a newsletter, a monthly newsletter. It's been going on about four years now called Counter Markets. And I do write, uh, I write a, a column every single month and I do write about uh, experiences here in Saipan and, you know, also, but also certain things that 
agorism, counter economy, free markets. It's a very cool newsletter with the private telegram group as well. Some of the people in that case are, are expats as well. So, so yeah, if people want to check that out, that's countermarkets.com as well. But cryptofrontier.org if you want to know more about the movement here on Saipan. Perfect. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Mikael. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.